0: Amen. Good morning. Uh, Thank you all so much for being here. I'm going to go ahead and invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 44. Psalm 44, if you're visiting with us, uh, we have Bibles in the back if you would like to use one uh, or if you open your device, whatever uh, you do. Uh, It's just important that you have a Bible in front of you this morning. Uh, We don't want you just to just to assume that what we're saying is right. We want you to see it from the Word of God Um, to Psalm 44. and as you're turning uh, there, just a couple of things. First, uh, three weeks ago, we finished up Psalm 41. And obviously, there's two psalms between 41 and 44. Uh, we're not just skipping them. Uh, over the next two weeks, Pastor Stephen will be uh, leading us through those psalms with the intention of kind of speaking on spiritual depression. Um, and, and so what an incredible uh, message, what an incredible topic that, that I believe so many of us need to hear. Uh, you might be dealing with depression, depression, uh, uh, You might know someone who is dealing with depression. The next two weeks are going to be so encouraging to you. So I'm going to encourage you to come back and um, study God's Word with us. Um, Also, just another quick note. In the Psalm 41, if you go back, uh, the very next uh, Psalm 42 on top of it says Book 2. So right now we are in Book 2 of the Psalms. Just wanted to make that uh, very clear this morning. uh, so what we're going to do, we normally just read our text and standing up reading our text. There's a lot in Psalm 44. Uh, so for the sake of time, uh, I'm just going to have a, a quick introduction and then we're going to pray and then we are going to get right into uh, the text. So uh, first, just a quick note, if you go at the very top of Psalm 44, it says to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. So, so a maskil simply means it's a lament song. 42, 43, 44, all lament psalms, okay? And so here's a quick question. What does the word lament mean? I didn't know what it meant before I studied it this week. It's just not in our vocabulary in America, right? Um, so here's a couple definitions for you this morning. What, what is the lament? The, the dictionary defines the word lament as feeling or expressing sorrow or grief. Say that again. Feeling or expressing sorrow or grief. But in Scripture, laments are a little bit deeper than just expressing our sorrow and grief. In uh, Scripture, laments do more than just give voice for painful emotions. These laments, like the one this morning, are meant to, yes, give us words to express our sorrow and grief. Yes, they also point us to our God. Does that make sense? So we just don't fuss to fuss. We don't just express our sorrows to the Lord, but. In the midst of our expressing, that should lead us to a deeper worship of our God, a deeper trust of our God. These laments are a theology, a form of worship. They're exercises in faith and they are transformative for the believer. Nearly all the laments move from negative to positive, from sorrow to joy, from fear to trust. And the laments represent the journey of the soul. Um, and again, I've already mentioned this, what made this psalm so difficult this week for me to apply to us here in 2019 is that we just don't do that here in America. Uh, we're told very early in life to uh, just hold our emotions, don't express them. If you express them, express them on Facebook with a very long post that nobody really wants to read in the first place, right? That's just what we're told. And what the Word of God wants to teach us this morning is just, just a little bit more about this idea of this worship called lament. Lament. How do you lament? How should we react in the midst of our difficulties? And ultimately, who can we trust in the middle of our difficulties? So let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to dive right into the text. Father, we're so grateful for this morning. Where we've already thought about what you did for us at the cross, so where we think about your resurrection. Where I know even in my soul today, Lord, the only hope I have is in the resurrection. The only joy I have is in in Jesus. So Lord, I pray for souls in the room, Lord, that your word would be clear. Lord, that you would just give comfort for those who are hurting. Lord, that you would encourage us But more than anything, Lord, that you would point us to you, your heart, God, your steadfast love, for you are all that we can cling to. So Lord, lead this time, we pray. Teach us more about you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. September 11th, 2001, I was in sixth grade, uh, was in the middle of a break, and I don't know if middle school does, still does that. We had a break time, and I was, so I was out there in Bestford City Middle, where the kids are dropped off and picked up every day. There's a little grass area where it used to be in 2001, and, and so we were out there, we were eating snacks, drinking our sodas, and uh, a good friend of mine was walking around telling everybody that he heard that something bad happened to the White House. And we we're like, man, you're, you're crazy. Like, what are you talking about? And so, so we got out from break, and our, our teachers brought us back into our home rooms, all split up, all in our rooms. And our, our teachers sat us down, and they cut the TV on that day. Saw the bombings that took place in New York. Saw what happened in Pennsylvania. Saw thousands of people dying because of an attack. Um, that day significant, I found out my nose was broke. It was just a very bad day in my, in my little mind. Um, but, question, why do I remember so vividly what happened on September 11th, 2001? Why is it, to this day, completely shaping still America? Me and Megan were talking as we came in today. That day, specifically, is still shaping a lot of our hearts and minds as we travel. A lot of us are still afraid to fly, Right? Honestly, it's probably led some of us to racism. It's not healthy, right? It's, it's true. We're going to go see one of our favorite worship bands next week, leading worship force, And there's going to be thousands of Christians in one building. In the back of my mind, absolutely that day still shapes my thoughts, right? I'm afraid. Because on September 11th, it wasn't just individuals who were attacked. In the mind of America... Our whole country was attacked by someone we didn't know. We didn't understand why this was happening. All we knew was that America was under attack. And the whole country was shook by that moment. Right? This morning in Psalm 44, we're not looking at a specific event in someone like David's life. David's not expressing from his heart something that happened to him personally. This morning, the sons of Korah is writing for the entire nation of Israel. An event has took place that has completely wrecked the entire nation. So when we read this text this morning, we're hearing the entire heart cry of the country of Israel. Saying, Lord, can, 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 can you help us? Well, we are in desperate need of your grace at this moment as your people. Psalm 44, again, we see the entire nation Israel represented in the events that are taking place. And here's a fun fact. This psalm is the first we lament in the psalms. We are grieving towards our God. We are crying out to Him of our concerns. So a few questions to consider as we read Psalm 44. First, why was it so confusing for Israel to have to go through suffering as God's chosen people? Why is that confusing? Secondly, how does their confusion get answered through Jesus in the New Testament? Thirdly, if God's people go through suffering, does that mean he isn't sovereign and active in the world? And finally, ultimately, how do we respond in the midst of our suffering? So, again, just a few things I pray that kind of gets answered out as we go through our text this morning. So, let's go ahead, verses 1 through 3. First thing I want you to see is that God's people remember the deliverance of the Lord and trust him. Verse 1 O God, we have heard with our ears. our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days. In the days of old, you with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face. For you delighted in them. So in the midst of their current suffering, Israel really reflects on what God had done for them in the past. Um, it says that they heard from their fathers about the Lord's mighty works. Uh, if you know much about Old Testament, New Testament, the Jewish people are very oral people. They, they speak about their history. They still do that to this day. Um, the parents, the leaders of the home, specifically the father here, tells his children about God's work, his word, his covenant. The next generation heard with their own ears the mighty deeds of the Lord from their fathers. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and just ask this question to you for the parents in the room. Me and Megan hope to be parents one day. Here's a question I have for you today. How does your kids learn about the redemptive work of God, His work, and our salvation? How? Yes, yes, as a church, we partner with you, we team with you, we try to help you, we try to encourage you. But ultimately, they hear it through you, parents. They hear about Jesus through you. They see Jesus being lived out through you. They come into a comprehension, understanding of who God is because of how you are as a parent. Yes, if your your kids come here every week, if they're in kids' ministry right now... um, They're being led through the Gospel Project, project, which is literally the entire story of the Bible. They're being led through the entire story of the Bible. And that's awesome. That's great. I'm so thankful for things like that here in the church today. And yes, if your child is sitting here right beside you right now, they are hearing the Bible being preached. But that is not enough, parents. Your child's understanding of the God of the Bible largely is on the shoulders of you. We just want to help you. So, So you are the main source of discipleship in your kid's life. And let me say, I'm so thankful for men and women throughout my entire life at church who taught me the Word of God. I can name person by person from from kindergarten up who taught me the Bible. And I still remember all those incredible stories. I'm so thankful for for fellow believers and pastors here today who who led me and encouraged me as a pastor, as a husband, as a a believer in, in Jesus but let me say this, if my parents throughout my entire life wouldn't have constantly been faithful in their witness of the Lord by reading, telling me about the Bible, the love of God, the new good news of Christ and the importance of church, there is no telling what disaster I would be into today. I would have never known what it looks like to serve the Lord faithfully every single week at church if they wouldn't have shown me first. I wouldn't understand what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves if my parents wouldn't have been walking billboards of loving every person around them, no matter their skin color, no matter their income, no matter their age, no matter their walk of life. I wouldn't understand the love, the mercy, support, and compassion of our Heavenly Father if my earthly father and mother wouldn't have shown me the love, mercy, support, and compassion in my everyday life. I wouldn't understand the call of fearing the Lord if my parents wouldn't have disciplined discipline me, and man, they disciplined me all the time. But what, what does that do? That taught me a healthy fear of them, right? And what does that do? That help, helps me understand a healthy fear of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I could go on and on about the importance of your impact on your kids. But here's how I'm going to close this. Simply be faithful parents. Love your kids, care for them, support them, encourage them, discipline them. Above all else, never stop bragging about Jesus. Never stop showing the goodness of Jesus to your kids every single day. In our text this morning, the present generation of Israel had heard from their parents about the Lord's mighty deeds for his people. We see here specifically that the remembrance of God leading Israel to conquer the land he promised Abraham. Go back there to verse 2 and 3, it says, You with your own hand drove out the nation's. But them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm in the light of your face. For you delighted in them. Uh, we see here specifically that the remembrance of God leading Israel to conquer the conquered land of Abraham, we see how the Lord drove out Israel's enemies and how he planted them and where he, what in, in which he said he was going to do. The emphasis that is is that we see in this text is that the Lord is the one who led and won the victories for Israel, not Israel. Though they used swords, those they used weapons to, to fight off their enemies, Israel knew that it was the Lord who promised the land to them, and it was he who fulfilled his promise. God was a sovereign one, not them. He providentially worked out his promises, not them. He won victories for his people. His name continued to beam to the nations because of his faithfulness towards his people. Uh, we see this same confession in Joshua 24. It says, For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those things, great signs, in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we Pass, and the Lord drove out before all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now, if you go back down to verse 3, um, it says, But your right hand, your arm, in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So the light of your face, the idea of you delighting in them, points to God's favor. God's favor. So Israel's saying here is that we won those battles... Not because of our work or might, but because of your power, your work, and your favor. You're on our side. You put your face on us. Israel Israel is reminding themselves of who God really is and who they are as his people. In light of their current struggle, remembering what God has done for them in the past leads them to a deeper trust in the Lord in the present. Drop down to verses 4 through 8. It says, you are my king, O God. Ordain, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. Verse 6 For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes, and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we it continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. So in verses 4 through 8, we are beginning to see Israel's current struggle. Uh, We shift from we have heard to now you are my king. Israel is facing incredible opposition, and in the midst of their struggle, we hear a current confession of faith in God as refuge, as rock, which is still the same message, the same faith, the same uh, uh, joy that we see in the days of old at the beginning of our psalm. Note the shift there in verse 4 to the personal pronoun that says, my king forever forever. Uh, This likely is a leader speaking on behalf of their people. Uh, It's just literally just a a personal heart confessing for the entire nation. In a way, you could say that every heart is saying that. But this is possibly a king, possibly a leader, just saying for their people, You are our king. You are our God, Yahweh. Uh, Just as in the days of old, um, this current Israel who knows that they are God's covenant people... Pleased to the Lord to providentially step up, fight for them for the sake of his covenantal promises. They know that through his power, steadfast love and faithfulness, they can defeat their enemy. And notice that they're not placing their hope and their restoration in their weapons or their own work, but in the favor and hand of the Lord. They have no chance outside of his sovereign love for them. They're saying, Lord, you are a faithful God. You have never failed us, God. We know we can win battles if you are with us. If you fight for us, we can't do it alone, though. We know our enemies. We the, we know our enemies have no chance against your sovereign power or favor because we have seen you fight for us in the past, and we know that you can do it still here at this moment. You see, Israel recognizes God's faithfulness and love through every step of their journey, which leads them to them to continually praise and boast in His name. Forever. Next thing I want you to see in verses nine through twenty-two is that God's people bring their current confusion and complaint before the Lord. Uh, drop down to. Uh, well, before I say this, um, turn to, with me to Leviticus twenty-six. Leviticus twenty-six. I want to see something this morning before we read uh, nine through sixteen, because it's so critical for us to understand this passage in order for us to understand why it was so confusing for the Israelites to suffer as God's people. Leviticus 26 uh, verses 14 through 17 is what we're going to be reading. The text says, God's speaking to His people, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, listen, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and favor that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. Now I want to keep that in your mind. Flip back with me to Psalm 44. I want you to keep that in your mind. What is God saying to Israel? If you disobey me, if you don't follow my commands, this is going to happen to you. I'm going to punish you. Right? I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to remove you from the land. I'm going to let your, let your enemies over uh, flow you, overwhelm you. So, so listen 9 through 16 now. Verse 8 says that they boast in God continually, right? Well, listen to verse 9. It says, But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not go- gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and you have scattered us among the nations." You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors to the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me. And shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. So what's happening here? Just like in the past, Israel's going out to battle. In the past, God's led them through victory. What's happened here? God's people are being destroyed. They're being beaten by their enemies. They're being oppressed. They're being looted. They're being mocked by their enemies. They're being exiled to different countries and they're being killed. Inhumanized, It seems like they're not being treated as God's covenant people. It seems like they're being treated as God's enemy. Notice in 9 through 14, who is Israel blaming for their suffering? Go back there. It says, But you have rejected us. Verse 10, you have made us turn back. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for slaughter. Verse 12, you have sold your people for a trifle. Verse 13, you have made us a ton of our neighbors. 14, you have made us a byword among the nations. Who's Israel blaming through their suffering? They're blaming God. They're saying, Lord, you have put this on us. In Israel's eyes, God is seen as rejecting and oppressing his chosen people. Turning his face and favor away from them and purposely not fighting for them. It seems as if he is driving Israel away from the very land that he promised them. In verse 12, the psalmist is saying, God, you aren't even receiving glory through our suffering. In fact, you're actually being mocked and blasphemed by these pagan nations. In other words, God, we are dying. We're being looted, we're being mocked, we're being destroyed. And yet, Lord, you're not receiving any glory for that. No one is bragging about Yahweh. In fact, everyone is blaspheming you around us. They're saying, look, the God of Israel is defeated because we've destroyed his people. All this doesn't make sense to them. You fought for us in the past. You held us up for your people, as your people, to... um, You held us up for your namesake then, and why is it not happening now? Why are you allowing us, your people, to suffer so badly? Why are you allowing your name to be thrown around like garbage amongst the nations? At 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 the heart of the charges against God here in 9 through 14 is that he cares very little about his people. Their very faith in the God of heaven, their divine warrior, whose past glory acts of deliverance saved Israel then, in which they believed was actually now being tested in their current crisis. If this is happening, is it actually true? If what we believe is true, why is this happening now? And notice in verses 15 and 16, in the midst of this wearing and tearing and being destroyed, listen to their heart. Verses 15, all day long my disgrace is before me. His shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. So, so this disgrace of the nation affected each citizen so that he or she could speak of my disgrace. God's people have been completely torn from the inside out. They have lost all confidence. They've lost all hope. They're being taunted. They're being mocked. They're being slain by their enemies all day. And, yet, and, and in the midst of that, they're walking around like they're a dog with their... His tail between his leg. They're embarrassed. They're disgraced. As a nation, they are completely broken. And ultimately, their defeat is a representation of their God to the outside world. They worship the God of heaven, the only true God. And through their destruction, all the nations are absolutely mocking Yahweh. And they're embarrassed. They're ashamed. Go to verses 17 to 22, though this is critical. In light of all this suffering, all this stuff that they're going through, listen to 17 through 22. All this has come upon us, listen, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet, you have broken us in the place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Verse 22. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now this is why we need to start at Leviticus. Remember Leviticus. What did God say? If you disobey my commandments, if you don't follow me, This is going to happen to you. I'm going to turn my face against you. Right? You're going to be punished. And notice the text. Israel's not done that. Israel has not turned away from the God of heaven. In fact, they've been continually boasting in Yahweh, yet it's still happening. They're suffering. They're suffering in the midst of their obedience. You notice that back down in um, verse 20, it says, If we had forgotten the name of God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, listen, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Israel's saying, Listen, would you know we've been faithful? If our hearts have been lying, if we have actually been seeking a foreign God for refuge, you would know that, right? You're sovereign. Lord, yet I'm still going through all this. It doesn't make sense, Lord. Here Israel is pleading for their innocence from turning their backs from God in His covenant. They have not sought after false gods, but they have only worshipped Yahweh alone. Listen, this is important. They're not pleading that they are sinless. But they are saying that with their entire being, with everything that they can, they have honestly with all their hearts have sought after God. They have not turned away from him. They've tried their very best to follow his ways. And in the midst of this, Israel is so confused about their situation, that they're not confused about the sovereignty of their God, nor his faithfulness towards his people. They know who God is. They know his promises. Calvin said it like this, however, the meaning is rather that though they cannot see any obvious explanation for their present suffering, God himself must have a good reason for for permitting it. Further, the psalmist is saying that they are patiently bowing their necks to the yoke God has laid upon them and persevering in his service. Even though dark clouds veil his face, they have not forgotten him. Drop down to verse 22. It says, Yet for your sake, God, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Israel here has been defeated, they're being embarrassed, they're being mocked, they're being killed. But not because they're not faithful to Yahweh, but it's the opposite. They've actually been faithful to Yahweh, so they're being killed. Israel's been suffering all these terrible things because they are God's chosen people. They've been killed because they bear the name of the living God. And brothers and sisters, our minds should immediately look to our perfect Savior who though he was sinless and innocent of every charge, became obedient to the point of death on the cross for sinners such as you and me. Isaiah 53 says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus, the Son of God, was beaten, he was mocked, he was oppressed, he was whipped, torn apart, and killed because he was obedient to the Father's will, and he bared the exact imprint of his Father. Though he created the world, the world, and he came into the world, the world hated him, despised him, crucified him because they did not accept that he was the promised Messiah. See, so Jesus suffered, died in our place, bearing God's wrath, our sin at the cross, all for the Father's glory and for our salvation. Jesus was led to Calvary because of his love for his Father and for us, his church. And listen to John 15, Jesus speaking to his followers. 15, 20, 21 through 1. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. That all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. I love what Spurgeon said. so simple, so clear. The world knows not its nobility. It has no eye for true excellence. It found a cross for the Master and cannot be expected to reward crowns to His disciples. So let's just really apply that really quickly. Following Christ is costly. It's going to cost you your life. You I think about, um, if you know, in the news last Sunday our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka, attacked in the midst of worship service. Bombs, hundreds of people were killed. Here in America, uh, we don't experience that just yet, right? It's not as um, uh, normal, I guess you would say. Um, But let me say this. You may have already felt the effects of being a Christ follower in your workplace. You may have already been mocked in the past for your faith in Jesus. You may have lost your job, been outcasted by your family, or you may have lost many friends through the years because you recognize Jesus as Christ, as a you recognize yourself as a Christ follower and they of the world. The question we must ask is: Is Jesus worth our lives? And secondly, when persecution and suffering comes for his name's sake, what do we do? Who do we look to? And how should we respond? Suffering tough because we don't really fully understand it. We don't understand why God allows things to happen. This morning I asked you a couple weeks ago to pray for a, a good friend of mine, Stuart, who was battling with cancer. And me and Megan went to his funeral yesterday. 25 years old. Passionate lover of Jesus who loved his worship Who boasts in Christ, who helped other people grow in Christ all the time. And in my mind, do I understand that God would allow someone who is, you think about the perfect person to give the baton to and, and continue to spread the name. He'll be like the perfect candidate, but yet, in the midst of God sovereignly in his perfect plan, for some reason, Stuart passes away. And we don't understand why suffering comes, we don't understand why these things happen, but we can understand that God is sovereign, He knows what's best. We might see injustices in the world. Today, there's more slavery in the world than ever in human history. We don't understand those things. We don't understand why bad things happen. We don't understand why God's people seem like they're being punished, yet all the, the wicked people are flourishing. Solomon says, when he, when he saw that in Ecclesiastes, he says, this is something that is absolutely vain in this world. The good person is dying, the righteous person is dying, yet the wicked is flourishing. It don't make sense to us. But here's, here's what this text is want to teach us this morning. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our confusion, honestly, in the midst of our complaints, we can express them to our God. And listen, we can rest our faith and trust in God's promises for His people. And this is really cool. Romans 8, 31 through 36. Can you turn there with me? And you can go ahead and keep your place in Romans 8 as well because we'll go there at the very end to um, so wrap it up. Romans 8, 31 through 36. Paul here is quoting Psalm 44, verse 22. Listen to what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? uh, Church, if God is for you, who can ever be against you? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If it is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35. Who, should, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In Psalm 44, though Israel was suffering in the hands of the pagan world for the sake of the name of Yahweh, and though God's covenant people, us, the church, are suffering in the hands of the same pagan world for the sake of the name of Jesus, this is what God has always promised and will uh, will forever promise to His chosen people. Listen, if you're mine, nothing will ever change that. If I place my steadfast love on you, if I chose you, Nothing, not even death itself, will separate you from my love. If God is for us, brothers and sisters, nothing can stand against us. Our God will never forsake us. He sent his son to die on the cross and raise from the dead so that you and I could be adopted as his children. And listen, nothing, not suffering, not tribulation or death will ever take us out of his hand. Uh, yesterday we were at Stewart's funeral, his, and in his will, he, he wrote that his wife would come and speak, and there was a lot of people at the funeral and asked his wife to speak out publicly, and she was saying how she hates speaking out publicly, and it's kind of funny in that moment, but that, um, uh, uh, we we're just struck by what she said. Halfway through, she was thanking everybody for being there. And then "This, this is what she said. She says, "I want to make this very clear that cancer did not take away my husband." Cancer didn't kill my husband. For some reason, God of heaven, in his sovereign plan, in his providential way, he called my husband home. That's a comfort. It's a strength. We have a hope in the resurrection, brothers and sisters. But what, what Autumn was saying yesterday and what this text is saying today, if God has chosen you, has placed his love on you, he's never going to remove it suffering, tribulation, problems in your life. Suffering might come, but the love of God will never be removed from you. Praise God for that. Now, go back with me to Psalm 44. And we're we're getting close to closing. Psalm 44. Now, I want you to... so, So, this very hope and trust in God's favor... His steadfast love, his faithfulness is what is anchoring Israel in the midst of their suffering. suffering. And listen to what they cry out in verses 23 through 26. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up! Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So, so after expressing their complaint, their confusion to God about their suffering, they cry out to him to quickly take action for the sake of his people. Though, though God does not sleep, his surprising silence in the midst of their suffering makes it seem like he is. Do you remember the story of Mark 4 the, the storms happening on the boat. Disciples, the waters crashing into the boat. And you see this picture of Jesus sleeping on a pillow in the midst of the storm, and disciples wake up Jesus like, "Lord, do you not care that we're we're about to die? Our boat's about to go under. Do you not care about that?" It seemed like Jesus cared about their their situation. Just, it seemed like he was he was sleeping there, but we know Jesus is rosy. He calmed the storm, and and they were good to go. Israel here pleased for the Lord to quickly take action, to stir his heart, to quickly fight for his people. Notice again in verse 25 and 26. For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. Verse 26, rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. In dependency of God's favor, they prostrate themselves to the ground, They don't have the power to rise up, but in prayer they plead to their covenant on God to rise up on behalf of them. If you notice in the conclusion of their prayer, God's people submit themselves to His steadfast love. Their lives, their future as a country, and their covenant between God and themselves all lies on His steadfast love. His unchanging love towards His chosen people. And again, we see the connection between Paul's response to suffering in Romans 8 where he says that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And likewise, Israel is saying nothing will separate us from the love of, of their God. He will rise and fight for them. Now here's something to note. There is absolutely no resolution in this psalm. Another way to say that, there's no conclusion. When they finish this psalm, Israel is still in the midst of their suffering. I not you notice that this morning kind of a a special psalm because a lot lot of times we see the conclusion, right? In this situation, Israel is still waiting for God to respond. They're still waiting for God's powerful hand to intervene in their situation. But here's what we need to see in Psalm 44. This psalm is an example, an expression of worship towards our God in the midst of our difficulties. That at the point of not being able to go any further... At the lowest moments of despair, we are encouraged to cry out to our God to express our confusion and complaints to Him and call out to the God of heaven to redeem us as we walk in the suffering of this life and as we trust and hope of, in His unfailing love towards us. So, so how should we apply this passage today? got two questions for us. Let me say this. It would be very easy to apply this just to America. I want to make this very clear. This text is for God's covenant people it's for Israel now it's for the church I'm going to try to apply that for the church this morning first question I want to ask is are we bringing our current confusion and complaints before the Lord are we bringing our current confusion and complaints before the Lord uh, like I mentioned earlier there's um, it's, not, it's, it's just not common in America to do that um, I love worship and, and, and anytime I pray, I always try to thank Isaiah 6, a picture of God and all his reverence and all his glory. And in the midst of just that fear, I think sometimes I almost I fear in an unhealthy way. Like I, I don't trust that he is my heavenly father who knows what's best for me. And sometimes I'm, I'm afraid to express how I actually feel. I'm, I'm afraid to express my concern and my worry and my problems. This morning, are we bringing the struggles and difficulties that we see and may experience before the Lord? Are we seeking His space in the midst of our confusion? So, this morning, you may be hurting because of the suffering of another believer or because of something that's actually happened to you in this world right now. And it just really doesn't make sense. Here's my plea, brothers and sisters. Bring your confusion. Bring your complaints before the Lord. Here's the key though. Confusion shouldn't stop there, but it should always move towards a prayer of faith. It shouldn't stop there. It should always move to a prayer of faith. Always keep Israel's example in our minds. They said, Lord, we know you. We know we are your people and that you have never, nor will you ever forsake us. But Father, right now, what I'm seeing doesn't just make sense. I'm suffering are suffering, there's injustices in the world, yet, Lord, I trust you alone. You are God, I am not. And in however way you see fit to work this out, your promises will stand and you will never forsake me, you will never forsake your people. Second question. And go ahead and turn with me to Romans 8, and this is where we're going to close. Are we crying out to the Lord to rise up and redeem His own First question was: Are we coming before the Lord with our confusion, our complaints? Second part we see in Psalm forty-four: Are we crying out to God to rise up, redeem His chosen people? Read Romans eight eighteen through twenty-six with me. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Inwardly, "...as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we, have, we were saved, and now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is, he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Verse 26. "...Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness." For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. This morning, there's, there's so many sufferings and trials that I can never explain. I mean, I mentioned my friend Stuart. I can't explain that. It doesn't make sense in my mind. But what I do know is that whatever this world might throw our way, nothing compares to the glorious future we have with our God for all of eternity. We long for that glorious day when Jesus brings His salvation, His righteousness to this world, and when all sin and darkness forever is destroyed and thrown into hell. Yet, in the middle of our sufferings, brothers and sisters, in this life now, isn't it amazing to think that when we confront God and bring our sufferings and confusion to Him, even when we're too weak to speak, the Holy Spirit pleads for us. He groans for us. He he listens our prayers up to the Lord. This morning, this is my encouragement. Pray for those who are afflicted. Pray for those who are downtrodden. This morning, pray that the Lord will rise up and redeem His people. May we echo the Apostle John's prayer. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Pray that His name will forever be glorified. Praise Him that His steadfast love will never be removed from His people. Let us pray. But if we were honest right now, we don't fully understand why certain things happen. But we don't understand why. Seems like the righteous your people die. And it seems like those who hate you, who despise you flourish. It doesn't make sense to us, Lord. It doesn't make sense that so much wickedness can spread over this world. Lord, but what we can rely on or put our trust in is that you are an unfailing God. If you were for us, who could ever be against us? Lord, I just echo what Alden said yesterday. This world did not take us out of it. Our God's in control. You are sovereign. You are our Savior, our Redeemer, our Reconciler. Lord, we thank you so much for the cross, the resurrection. Well, we thank you that you are a loving Father who graciously listens to our prayers. You hear our cries. You hear our hurts. And Father, I pray this morning, God, for the souls in the room, or may we just simply come before your throne pleading our case, pleading to you based off your sovereign love, pleading to you because we know we're your people and we thank you that you are righteous, you are perfect, and Lord, You will never fail. You will win the victory forever. So Lord, may we lift our hearts to You. Lord, may we lift our, our complaints, our issues, our problems. Lord, may we seek You for our refuge, our strength and all we do. We pray to all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.